2016, a lot of influencer marketing was done on a hunch. And then we had better tools to analyse data. And I think that there is a danger of the pendulum swinging too far the other way to this deification of, of data. Uh, I think there's a danger of losing sight of the importance of human insight and of human contextual intelligence. Hello and welcome to Performance Marketing Unlocked, the podcast from Performance Marketing World where we crack the code of a new topic each week from TikTok to ChatGPT to the metaverse and PPC. And in the studio with me today, we will be unlocking influence marketing and its coming of age with one of PMW's favourite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Director General of the Influencer Marketing Trade Body, host of the Influencer Marketing Lab podcast, author, lecturer, and well, all-round genius, as you can probably tell. So we couldn't have someone better to come and unlock the nuanced and bubbling topic of influencer marketing. This is Performance Marketing Unlocked. Well, thank you very much for that intro. I think it can only go one way. But, it can only go one way from, from that. You had everything. It was smooth as silk. You had the flattery in there. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. I mean, Scott, I mean, you only have to have a quick glance at your LinkedIn to get all that. I mean, it's incredible what you get up to. You tackle influence marketing from all these different mediums, blogs, newsletters, lectures, podcasts, etc. Do you have a favourite? Oh, that's a killer question. Listen, I'm very excited about the newsletter at the moment, Create a Briefing. Uh, if anyone's not subscribed, they should be. It's a brilliant newsletter. <laughs> um, uh, and I love that at the moment. So a lot of my attention is going into that and trying to grow the numbers. And, and the, there's a, a steady uptick week on week. I love that because I'm trying to do it from a global perspective as well. So trying to make sense from it from around the world, um, well, from around the world, different jurisdictions and about regulation as well as the fun stuff as well. Uh, but I've been recommissioned to to produce a, my podcast, The Influence of Marketing Lab. So th- those are my two favourite genres. However, I've been blogging for the last 10 years. No one ever comments on my blogging, but I, I, win, <laughs> I win an award every year for the top 10 PR blogging uh, yes, or yeah. top 10 blogs. And I've done that, you know, won an award. Well, I've been a top 10 blogger for 10 years. Uh, but no one, no one's interested in the blogging. <laughs> I like it because I mean, it kind of. I, I think if I can articulate what I'm, if I have something in mind and I can articulate it in seven hundred words, then I kind of get it. So, out of the blog, it then goes into the podcast and then and, and then into newsletters. So it starts off with the mm, blog. Yeah. Okay. So they all kind of feed into each other. And do you have any idea if there's a medium that you haven't tried that you'd like to foray? Into? Well, as you can see, uh, the, <laughs> the, the video uh, uh, podcasting format is not really my metier. Uh, I'd like to be able to do some sort of short form video, but really, I think. I'm better behind the camera and uh, behind the microphone. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because so you are, like you said, you're behind the camera, you're the trade body kind of perspective of this, writing all these newsletters about creators, influence people that are, you know, the top tier of short form video. Does it, do you think it's a difficult jump to make in a way, knowing all about it and never having done it? Yeah, well, it's a bit meta, isn't it? You know, yeah. being an influencer <laughs> about influencer marketing. Um Listen, I can, you know, I'm the wrong side of 50. I can only do what I can do, you know. <laughs> I was, I trained as a as a journalist, as a radio journalist and uh, a print journalist a gazillion years ago. I was so long ago that for the radio bit, A, I was terrible, terrible, terrible at it. But B, it was the, the days of the China Graph and the... Uh, 
uh, and a razor blade cutting out the ums and ahs in a, in a little booth. That's how long ago it was. So, uh, so it's a, it's a big leap from there onto television. So, I, I mean, I can only applaud uh, what 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 uh, creators create. And you know, I I got a thirteen year old daughter. She she can flip through an iPhone and create a TikTok in in, in seconds. And I, you know, it takes me hours to produce something a podcast. Yeah, even I I'm twenty four and I was reading a blog post about how to nail TikTok for over twenty fives because I was like, I don't understand <laughs> this. <laughs> I need to work out how we can do it better. <laughs> So, Scott, what has been getting your attention recently? Well, hopefully this won't be too dry, and this goes back to the newsletter, but just global scrutiny of the area of influencer marketing of our sector. And I think that kind of may have been spurred by the UK parliamentary influencer inquiry of a couple of years ago, certainly 18 months ago. And I think parliamentarians in the UK thought that influencer marketing was a bit frothy, it was a bit faddish, it was a bit for the kids. And they had no idea how the serious brands, the serious agencies, the serious money being applied into that sector and the serious influence being applied within that sector. So I think in the UK, we've caught up very quickly. The influencer marketing trade body has worked with HMRC just around trying to upskill or build awareness about the, the tax regulations are for, for, for creators. Uh, and we've worked with, uh, I had a meeting just last week with the Financial Conduct Authority about Finfluencers. We'll come on to later about CAP and the Influencer Marketing Trade Body. Uh, but we, but regulators and Parliament are is taking the sector seriously. And not just in the UK as well. You know, I, I speak with the ATO, the Australian Tax Office. Uh, and in Australia, they're doing a sweep of uh, looking at content and to see if it's... Uh, uh, misleading or not. So it's not just the UK. I think globally we're, we're seeing a, a more of an interest in that space. I think that's, I mean, that's definitely true. I think especially in the last, you know, several years or so, the perception of influence marketing has been massively scrutinised and it's, uh, like I said, it's now being taken a lot more seriously. And I think you've said this before at many of our events, is the conflation between influencers and reality tv stars which can give it a bad name and things like that but i would like to ask you about um you mentioned different regions and what we say are the biggest difference between someone like the uk and influencers from asia for instance well it's different i was recording a podcast uh, just on on tuesday i think this week talking about these differences and let, let's take virtual influencers for example we think of them as a bit of fun in sort of anglo-saxon territories in america in the uk we think of them yeah yeah they're a bit of fun but they're huge huge business in uh, in japan and asia pack they're huge in brazil and we kind of disregard them at our, at our peril but we have to understand i think that there are differences uh, and there are differences in the way we use platforms. There are different platforms, there are different regulations. So although we think about influencer marketing from a global perspective, we often think about it starting in North America, then probably the next stop is probably London, then probably after that it's probably France, Paris and, and Berlin, then it probably go. we think about going, going to Australia after that. I think we're now beginning to see that each territory is leading influencer marketing in a slightly different way to be specific to its, its own consumers. Asia is ahead in a lot of ways with live commerce and, you know, shoppable commerce, like things like that. So but you're saying that they're leading in their own ways. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that possibly uh, TikTok made a, a misstep when it wanted to launch uh, live stream shopping in the UK. And, you know, UK was the, was the first territory outside China to be given this trial. And I think it was a misstep because it was maybe they thought, well, it works here, therefore it'll work there. And this goes back to the cultural differences, the way we use social media platforms. So it's all in flux. And I think that live stream shopping will be huge, but it won't be just sort of cut and paste what we did in China to what we do in London. That's not going to work. It has to be, have to work with the nuances uh, of the, the cultural differences for the country, but also internally in terms of understanding different organisational cultures, I think, at TikTok mm. in London. So, well, we'll have to wait and see what Elon Musk does. I mean, he's sort of copy WeChat, isn't he? But we're just... Well, that's, that's his game. That's his ultimate game plan. But it's easy to say, I'm going to copy WeChat. It's, it's slightly, slightly <laughs> harder to actually copy WeChat, isn't it? So, uh, you know, mm. we've seen a few missteps already from from Elon Musk since his acquisition was in October. You know, it, it's gone, I think... It was bought for $47 billion and now it's worth, I don't know, $10 billion or something like that. So watch this space. Hopefully you can turn it around. Let's get into the meat of the podcast, which is finding out about your ratings of the industry. So this is what you think is overrated and what you think is underrated. So shall we begin with what you think is overrated? Ah, uh, okay, good. Or underrated. Oh, you, no, no, overrated. You no, listen, let, let's, let, let, let's get straight into it. <laughs> I think marketers being overly seduced by follow accounts and subscriber numbers. And I think looking to those KPIs to sort of drive the the a, a campaign, I think is a misstep. I think it feels a bit dated. It's, it feels a bit sort of 2017, some 2018. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's, that's what I think. No, I, I um, had an interview recently with uh, Robin Ward, who's the head of UK sales at LTK. Yeah. And he completely agreed. He said... Long gone is the day that follow account is a persuasive metric when it comes to collaborations between brands and creators. A smaller influencer's sales performance can far outstrip larger influencers. And is this mainly down to the fact that because they have a smaller audience, that audience is just far more engaged? That's a great quote. Um, I think there there are a few reasons. I think that's certainly one of them. I think the smaller influencers have a more develop community they listen to the community more and they respond to that community so that they're the guardians of that community but i think also we're sort of transitioning from a a social graph to a content graph aren't we even someone with a handful of followers can blow up on on tiktok without having to have all those followers and and similarly just because you have i don't know if you're mr beast with uh, 150 million subscribers on youtube um, that doesn't mean that 150 million people are tuning in every time to his video often it's more but it could be less so it's not just don't get we shouldn't be hung up about follower counts and about subscription figures we should be more hung up on a couple of things real reach Uh, so you know how many people actually viewed that piece of content but more importantly what do they do after they viewed it you know, mm. do, do they engage in it? Do they start a conversation? Do they like it? Do they find out more information? Do they buy the product? What happens after the after the viewing bit, I think? In this interview that I had with Robin, he was saying as well that it's that kind of measurement that is quite difficult at the moment, being able to fully understand that path from the first engagement to where that goes is 
the bit that brands really want filled, there's such a hunger for that to be filled, but it is kind of holding them back in some way from influence marketing. Because- oh, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Yeah, attribution is is the holy grail. We're all trying to crack yeah. that. But, you know, it is hard, but it, but there are lots of metrics that you could, that will will provide better. Well, you're measuring outcomes, not, not outputs, aren't you? And so there are a lot more relevant KPIs than just theoretical reach. And what would you say then for kind of creators and influencers and I guess brands wanting to partner with them, what their kind of goals are nowadays in terms of uh, when I was speaking with Emily Valentine, she's a influencer and she has a follower a follower account of about 50,000. And she says, I like it where it is. I don't want it to get any bigger because I like the engagement that I have with my community. And I feel like if I got, got bigger, that would... Um, dilute in some way, perhaps. Well, that's that's a, that's a great point, and I think you know the, the the key word is community there, and what you're trying to do. What what is your motivation? We've talked about you know having one a thousand true fans, and now it can be you know a hundred true fans. What are those fifty thousand followers or community members? What are they going to do? You know, if if uh, that creator created uh, a clothing line how many of those 50,000 are going to buy it you know if they're going to I don't know do a, an online course how many people how many of those 50,000 would enroll if they did a, uh, a, a subscription discord server how many of those 50,000 would sign up if half of them signed up then that's a that's a really nice revenue generator and uh, yeah so it's deciding what you want is it a numbers game or is it a community game so there we go. There's your overrated. That was easy. Pretty good, wasn't it? Num- numbers in influence marketing in some in, to some extent, which is an interesting one. But let's hear what you think is underrated, and you know more sh- people should be knowing about this. I think human insight, and I think you know, 2015, 2016, it, a lot of influence marketing was done on a hunch, and then we had better tools to analyse data. And I think that there is a danger of the pendulum swinging too far the other way to this deification of of data. Uh, I think there's a danger of losing sight of the importance of human insight and of human contextual intelligence, especially when we look at data and more recently we look at artificial intelligence. Um, I think currently when we look at AI tools, I think they're, they're amazing at processing information the world's online information curated and condensed in the blink of an eye. But crucially, AI doesn't understand anything it produces. Generative AI collates information but has no understanding of how the words or the images it produces apply to the real world. And that's a really important difference, I think, that I think we are losing sight of the difference between knowledge and information. So absolutely we need to work with data, absolutely we need to work with artificial intelligence, but that has to work in partnership, in concert with humanity, with our beliefs, with our values, and and, and us being able to join dots uh, in a way that at the moment artificial artificial intelligence cannot do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's really um, interesting, actually, and also because of the most recent podcast I've recorded with Kate Cox from AI Scale Up Brightbid, she said... You should never get a human to do what a machine can but in the relevance of AI, saying if a machine could do it, they should do it. But I guess with human insight, there's always going to be 
a part that a human needs to do. And it's that knowledge aspect, isn't it? It's the understanding the data and making it actionable. A hundred percent. And I think we, I mean, it's 20 odd years since I did my MBA, so I'm not probably <laughs> going to get all, all this wrong. But you start with data, data then becomes information, information then becomes packaged up into information. And then after that, you bec- it's turned into wisdom. And I, at the moment, you need a human to turn, to translate that information into knowledge and then in, into wisdom. So absolutely, you know, in this quest for, for speed and efficiency, we need to work with all the tools that we have at our disposal, but not to the detriment of effectiveness. And, mm-hmm. and I think that is, that is where the humanity, the, the human insight, the contextual in- intelligence comes in. And do you think we are in close danger of going too far in our reliance on data and AI to use it? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, there's a simple answer. And, you know, who's going to regulate it? And, you know, earlier in the conversation, we talked about UK parliamentarians not quite understanding what influencer marketing is, you know. So so to expect the same parliamentarians to kind of get what artificial intelligence is and the potential benefits but also dangers of it um, is a long ask. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there are absolutely fundamental dangers there, um, but huge, huge opportunities as well. And do you have any kind of, in the next five years, say, I mean, even that's too long of a gap, any big changes within the tech that people use within influence marketing, changing, developing? What is your kind of on your, your, on your sight lines? Well, I think just an ability to be accurate and effective with the prompts that we use to get the, you know, you only get the outputs you want when you, if you have the appropriate inputs. So I think, you know, it will be commonplace. It'll be like writing an email. Well, no one writes emails. I'm, <laughs> I, I still write emails. But, you know, um, it, it'll be commonplace. It'll be part of the the workflow for any marketer, I think. But it has to be done with the, with the nuance. You know, it, it's the starting position. It's not the end position of a campaign. Well, talking a bit about regulation, let's move on to your best practice and can you tell us about the most exciting project that you've worked on recently well it's exciting for me hopefully it'll be exciting to the podcast of viewers and listeners um it is the influencer marketing trade body being appointed as a member of cap cap is the committee of advertising practice it's the sister organization to the Advertising Standards Authority. And it's really exciting for me because I lead the influence of marketing trade body, so well well done me. That, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, that's that's very exciting. But more, you know, more more importantly, it's exciting because we are the first new member of CAP in over a decade, and we're the only member dedicated to representing influencer marketing. So it's brilliant for for me personally. I can something I can tell my mum. <laughs> it's brilliant for IMTB, you know, as as this not for profit organisation that's only been knocking around eighteen months. But it's exciting too for influencer marketing as it demonstrates regulators welcoming our sector to the top table for the first time. It's a big move and it's an important one as well, especially considering the um, regulatory mishaps and issues there have been over the last few years. I know we've spoken to you a bit before about mm. Kimmy K. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kim Kardashian and yeah. her crypto ad issues, Mylene Klass, Molly May, etc. But it's not just the creators and influencers, it's the brands as well that come under fire, which is why 
I was almost surprised this happened happened earlier, to be mm. honest, because I think it's so important to have this new and emerging, emerged, but uh, massively expanding part of marketing to come under some kind of regulation. Well, it's always been under the uh, under regulation. But, However, the practitioners haven't been able to sit there and guide future regulation. So rather than us sitting, sitting there and crying into our beer and saying, oh, poor old us, no one's taking us seriously, we, can, we are now for the first time able to sit at that table and help, help shape for, uh, uh, future regulation and rules around advertising that affects influencer marketing. Going forward then, what does an appointment like this mean in the next steps for going forward and helping guide the authorities well already you know we've they've we've been welcomed in you know wholeheartedly by the, uh, the by the cap executive and i've been really really i would say humble sounds naff but but they've really uh you know taken everything that i've had to say or the imtb has to say they've taken that on they've taken it very seriously and already we've had early discussions about body image and image manipulation um, they, uh, the ASA or CAP and the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, has refreshed their guidance on influencer marketing. We've talked a little bit about Finfluencers and the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. The ASA, a couple of weeks ago, produced a cheat sheet for how Finfluencers and brands can stay on the right side of regulation when they're talking about financial products. So these are the sorts of conversations we're already having. The ASA is coming to the end of its five-year strategy. The IMTB was interviewed about what should be included in the next five-year strategy. So we're, we're, we're already, although we've only been part of it for, I don't know, two, two, three months, we're already enmeshed in the fabric of where we are today and how can we better the environment for tomorrow. God, I'd love to sit in in a big meeting. It's, it's <laughs> like that. They're, they're long, and they <laughs> are very uh, detailed. Um, I wasn't fully prepared for the rigor of <laughs> documentation that accompanies a meeting. Mm, there are a lot of documents, and but it's fascinating. It, it, it's really interesting to see the procedure at work, and as consumers and as practitioners, we don't we just see the end results mm. on a ruling. We don't see the mechanics of how it got to that understanding. And that's something that I've, I've been speaking with the executive. I just try to explain that, it, that uh, rulings aren't done on a hunch or you know, quickly churned out on a Tuesday night. There's a lot of thought and a lot of rigour that goes into that. I mean, I imagine it's some very fancy boardroom that these meetings happen in. Well, they're all <laughs> so far they've been via Zoom, uh, but I've got the next one is uh, is around a fancy boardroom. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous. Well, it must be quite comforting for brands as well to know that the IMTB is there guiding the authorities. Because I know in July of last year, you, you guys uh, released Reassure, yeah, which is an advisory platform to help brands and creators. Would you say it is a complex minefield of regulation? I don't think it is complex, but it's new to a lot of people. And so the cap code has been around, you know, for, for a long while. It's There is a slightly nuance to how the ASA is interpreting that law, those codes. But I think really where Reassure works, and we work with a fabulous hashtag ad consulting firm to, to produce that product, 
Uh, where it really works is be- it's not just about where do you stick hashtag ad. Mm-hmm. It's it's back to Kimi K and you know what what do we think with cryptocurrency and promoting crypto assets. We've had a recent few questions about kid influencers and you know where you know what is best practice for working with, with children in a paid for creator spot so it's not just about hashtag ad there's lots of other things about gambling and and alcohol how to be responsible as brands around regulated products so there's lots of different nuances within the rules well before we run out of time we have come to a pretty nerve-wracking end (laughs) of the podcast which, like you said before, it is my favourite part because everyone gets absolutely terrified about it and I've no idea why because it is just fun and games. But this is all about getting my attention and it's the infamous PMW Resell Me Open <laughs> Challenge. Well, thank you very much to the, uh, the, the last guest on your podcast for such a curveball oh, yeah. for the one she's chosen. You'll soon find out, well, as if this podcast episode hasn't been self-evident uh, enough, I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> so so uh, hold on to your hats for the next uh, 60 seconds. Yes, yeah, so it was Perla Bloom from EA Games. Yeah, why who, I order. Who <laughs> gave you floppy disk, which, as I was saying to Scott before we started recording, I used to choose the items for our guests, but I never chose floppy disk because I thought it was too hard, but Perla suggested it, so I couldn't say no. Are you prepared for the challenge? Oh, you better believe it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so actually our last guest um, did it in nine seconds oh, okay. and failed, so I wouldn't recommend trying to do it in less than 60. So here we go. And just just remember the the caveat of that. I'm not a salesperson. You'd be surprised about the amount of people that say that before them. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not even a marketer. Right. <laughs> let's let's crack on. Come okay. on. Okay. Scott Guthrie, you have sixty seconds to resell me a floppy disk. Say you want to transfer two thirds of a song, around about two and a half minutes worth of music. Or maybe you want to save three or four slides from your latest PowerPoint presentation. Then the floppy disk is the perfect solution. Data storage on the go. Possibly, possibly not. But the floppy disk remains very reliable, very stable, and it's a very well understood way to get information in and out of a machine. And they're almost impossible to hack. This time of the year, we start thinking about where to jet off to for our summer holidays. But did you know that British Airways fleet of Boeing 747s relied on floppy disks to load important software right up to just a couple of years ago? And many other carriers worldwide continue to put their trust in floppies to keep their aircraft flying safely. Isn't that reason enough to buy a floppy disk today? Boom! <laughs> that is probably the most well-timed answer we've ever had. I did not know that about the... There you go. Airplanes. So no, no more. Intrigue. In- well, yeah, you've caught my attention. That I'm is- unhackable and that intriguing. An- I've been writing down my points, score points, got a tick for the plain fact. Possible to hack. That is a good one, because I think... Because even USBs are quite easy to hack. Mm. Well, you would say that as a floppy disk salesman. <laughs> Absolutely. Throw, <laughs> throw out the, the USBs. Get yourself a, a, a mm. 10 pack of three and a half inch floppy disks. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Although I have to say, Scott. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go back to the aviation industry. 
And there are lots of other industries as well. Embroidery industry only use floppy disks. The embroidery industry? I don't know why. <laughs> they only use floppy disks. I think because the machines are so old, that's the only way they can update them. So I'm... I have to be brutal, and I hate doing this because you're so keen for this to be resold, but I can only take what was said in the allotted six-second time. And on this occasion, Scott, you have not resold. Oh, uh, uh, Bloom, I'm coming for you. <laughs> but you have, you have the opportunity to uh, challenge your next guest, and you can give them an equally ruthless... Well, I thought I'd give them a nice easy one, the, the, uh, the Sinclair C5. And if anyone hasn't didn't recognise it, what are you talking about? The Sinclair C five. <laughs> I only, had to give it a only, quick It's only yesterday it was launched. Surely, exactly. Yeah, it was electric powered tricycle. Yeah, which I think is perfect. I don't know. I don't know why I don't see more of them. To be honest, thank you so much. Scott. It's been so much fun. Thank you very much for having me. Lucy. Well, we've been trying to get you on for absolutely months, really, um, but we've had you now. We have unlocked influence marketing. It has come of age. It's an adult now, <laughs> guided. By the father of his marketing, Scott it's, it's a young, a stroppy adult. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's yeah. It's so I would say late teens. Late teens. Okay, so well, it's coming up to its eighteenth, and some at some point it's celebrate. Yeah. Okay, well, cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you very much for everyone that has come to listen to this episode. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, leave us a review because it all means a lot to us. And if you want to get more involved, as if this episode wasn't enough, you can get involved, ask questions to the podcast and future guests in our LinkedIn community, PMW Unlocked, where you can interact with the guests, send in questions, take part in polls and get exclusive insights from previous and future speakers at the Unlocked event. You can get all you need to know about performance marketing, daily news, trends and reports at performancemarketingworld.com. As usual, I am Lucy Shelley, multimedia editor at PMW and your host for Performance Marketing Unlocked. See you next time.